We're in First Timothy chapter four. I'd like to read the the verses preceding our immediate text and a few following. <clears throat> I'd like to really concentrate on verses seven and eight, but in order to do that, we really need to understand the entirety of this particular epistle. But I'll start with verse one in chapter four. It says, "But the Spirit explicitly says that in." Later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Let's go before the Lord. Our wonderful Heavenly Father, as we are assembled today in the building that you've provided us, Lord, with the people who belong to your Son, Jesus Christ, we seek to reflect upon the Scriptures, to meditate upon the truth of Christ in these Scriptures, God, and as we read this particular epistle, I pray that for each and every ear who would hear this message this morning that first we would be convicted of our sinful states convicted of our attitudes and our mind towards ministry but Lord I would ask that we most immediately would be caused to think of how Christ has fulfilled all things how he's gone to the cross to make all of this possible and how Marvelous, the gospel of Jesus Christ is. What a great honor it is to serve the true living God. And Lord, I ask for each and every one of us that you would bestow upon us the desire to serve. God, the desire to be faithful, the desire to be found in your word that we may not be found in our iniquity, but by the sanctification you provide through your Holy Spirit that we would be found becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that you would transform us. You would conform us to the image of your Son continually, that we may sing his praises and exalt his name. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to start with the very first verse. But 
But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. It goes on to say they forbid marriage and require abstinence from particular foods. When we focus on verses 7 and 8, as, as I intend to do this morning, it's needful that we realize where Paul is coming from as he writes this letter. As we recognize through our study of the Pauline epistles that there's largely an exhortation to the church, there's admonishment, and there's that reminder of how important that the ministry is. But it's vital for us to see it in its entirety. If we just take one verse without the knowledge of the, the scriptures preceding that verse, sometimes we get a skewed view of what Paul would be talking about. And chapter 1 begins with the importance of preserving biblical doctrine. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he's talking about the, the needfulness to preserve biblical doctrine, how important it is for Christians to embrace biblical doctrine and to be able to discern that which is biblical and scriptural and that which is apostate, that which is false. It then flows into the purpose for sound teaching. Why would we need it? What is its purpose? And then it talks about the detriment that comes with failing to do so. Paul ends chapter 1 by explaining the purpose of God's grace in Jesus Christ through His gospel and through sinful men that He calls to proclaim it. The culmination of this first chapter being the perseverance of Timothy as a minister. That's Paul's ultimate goal is to teach him about the perseverance that he must have that's needful for him to be an effective minister of Jesus Christ. And then we get into chapter 2 and it moves on to insist the importance of prayer not merely for ourselves, but for the brethren and all men, that by the grace of God and His supreme will, some might be saved, some might realize the power of the message of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, the person of Jesus Christ, His work, and ultimately what that has done. And some may also be compelled to preach because the, the marvelous gospel of Jesus Christ is so great that men must proclaim it. And Paul is focusing on that because he realizes that this is what is happening in the life of Timothy, a faithful minister of the gospel. He doesn't want someone who is only professing Christ with their mouth, but one who is also living a lifestyle. And I think that both men and women are encouraged in this, even though it is to a minister, a pastor, something that we know is held in office by man alone and not the woman but there's something to be said that, that we would be encouraged both as men and women to perform those duties which God has placed upon us, those which we were created to do. All of us are, are made the purpose of God to proclaim the gospel. You don't have to be a minister. You don't have to be a preacher. But there's that message hidden in there. It's not just for Timothy. It's not just for elders or deacons. But it really is for all of us that we would be faithful because he places these constraints and he, he describes what it's like to be a minister. And then we realize, you know what? Why, why should a minister be held to this particular standard? Because it's a standard of godliness. But isn't that what we all are called to be as Christians? And so then as we flow even further into chapter 3, he deals with the character and the attributes 
that I'm speaking of. And then within those, who could be considered for church leadership? Who could be considered as an elder, a pastor, teacher, a deacon? And then chapter ends, uh, 3 ends with this. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth, Great indeed, if we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Notice the emphasis here. How you should behave in the household of God. He's not only speaking to Timothy, he's speaking to believers. The household of God. It defines that for us. It says, which is the church of the living God. So when he's speaking, though the immediate context is to one man, that's why it's Scripture. It's good for reproof. It's good for teaching. It's good for us to understand because it's not just for Timothy. It's for those who are part of the church of the living God, who are the church of the living God. These days and times, I believe it's misinterpreted. It can be a building, like we talked about this morning, a facility. The church can be to some people. But the biblical view is that the truth is revealed from the very first verse. It's the lifestyle. The lifestyle depicts who the church is. There's a godly lifestyle that follows the godly repentance given of the Holy Spirit. It's a grace of God. The household of God isn't the building, but rather... It can be read as being children of God. How you ought to behave, being the children of God. You can substitute that there. Proclaiming, professing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So at all times, we should be and have in accordance with these scriptures, this lifestyle that represents what Christianity looks like. It's not just for your pastor. It's not just for your elders. not just for your deacons. It isn't a momentary behavior that happens in a place because I think that's what people do when they define the church in an biblical manner saying it's a building or a place or facility. Then they also ascribe to it these behavioral characteristics. Well, you have to act this way when you're here. The problem is the church isn't a place. It's a people. And so now you see that these restrictions aren't placed upon when you're in a building or when you're at a facility, but being the temple of the living God. These mortal bodies that have been made regenerate through the power of Christ Jesus, we're obligated now to behave in that manner all the time. It's not just an instance. It's not momentary. And then we arrive to the text that we have this morning. All of the instruction, all of the admonishment, the warnings were to reveal this truth that we see in chapter 4. Chapter 4 describes two people. First, it describes people within the church and those people outside the church. And those same two people exist in the world. There's one group that is of the world and then one who is not of the world. The regenerate and the unregenerate represented both in what we call the modern church. They've crept in unawares. Those who are truly unregenerate. Those who would speak the false gospel, the lies, the hypocrisy, the apostasy that Paul is speaking of up until this point. 
there's only two groups, the true saints and the men who are damned by their actions, damned by their sin. And with the first verse, there's this affirmation of apostasy. But the Spirit explicitly says that in these latter times, some will fall away. Again, it's kind of the same thing that I addressed when we, when we talked about Hebrews chapter 1. People ask, you know, are we in the last days? Of course we are. It says it. It says, in latter times, some will fall away. Are some falling away? Well, certainly. We must be in the latter times. End of discussion. And it says, they will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And so I'll ask you uh, to, to remember what happens in Acts chapter 20. If you'd like to turn there, it's verse 28. Remembering that these are people who are, are falling away. Verse 28 says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that, one, that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. The love of Paul was so great that he would continually admonish those who needed admonishing, reminding them of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he's given a warning to those who are overseers. Be careful. Be on guard. This isn't just anything that you're guarding. It's been paid for with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, Son of David, the spotless Lamb. <laughs> you're not guarding someone's property you're not guarding someone's motorcycle or their car or their jewelry you're guarding something that is more precious infinitely precious it's been bought with the blood of the lamb and then he makes this statement known that fierce wolves will come in most assuredly those who seek to fleece the flock will come in those who seek to deceive and take away that which doesn't belong to them they'll come and they come how does he say among your own selves that's the truth that the church will have those who are regenerate and then those who are unregenerate in their midst of their gathering. They won't be the church, obviously. Only those who belong to Christ are the true church, but they're present. They'll seek to draw away the disciples from Christ. They'll use any means necessary. Most oftentimes, it's counterfeit. It's close. It resembles Jesus Christ. It resembles the gospel. But it's lacking in some forms. In, this, in Ephesus... Paul's given the same warning. The Holy Spirit had placed a burden upon Paul, upon his heart to warn the sheep of such things. And he says, uh, this defaulting will come. And in John 16, it begins with this. It says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Why? Because it's dangerous to fall away. What people don't want to admit when they, when they believe in decisional regeneration, they say, well, yes, we choose, and then you can lose your salvation. Well, here's the issue with that. We'll find out later that if you fall away, there's no repentance after that. There's no coming back. Paul knows how dangerous it is to trample the gospel underfoot, to mock the Son of God. And he says, 
uh, in the move to verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. The spirit in a lot of churches doesn't glorify Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Unfortunately, the words that Paul has spoken in this particular epistle are today repeated. They're repeated in churches everywhere by the very same men who themselves are the ones indicted by his message. There are people that preach this that are guilty. The Western church largely spreads false doctrine. They don't spread it just here in America or South America. We spread it all over the world. Missionaries go out from churches and spread this false doctrine. It's a testimony of a false Holy Spirit, a counterfeit Christ, a watered-down gospel. And then we think about it. We think the largest masses of the charismatic church place emphasis upon the Holy Spirit who doesn't do what this chapter says he does. He doesn't glorify Christ. He doesn't reveal the truth and he doesn't certainly declare it to anyone to the power of the Holy Spirit to the effect that it becomes a regenerate creature instead of one who is damned by his sin, his unrighteousness, his uncleanliness. It's very ironic that we would see this, that the charismatic church by large does this. A lot of churches are guilty. And if we're not careful, we would be guilty. They say that the Holy Spirit will cause you to speak a certain way, to pray a certain way, laugh a certain way, work miracles. The Holy Spirit will cause you to work miracles. But we never see that Spirit come forth with a truly biblical representation of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. The second person of the Godhead. This Spirit doesn't testify of Him. It doesn't glorify Him. And it doesn't declare anything other than the fact that these people are lost. The Spirit that they talk about isn't revealing Christ to them. It's, it's offering, him, offering them the things that the flesh loves. It's saying these things are okay. Sin is okay. Basically, it's like saying if you believe in a God, you're safe. So we have to be careful. They've forsaken the true church for a false spirit that lacks an ability to declare the marvelous truths of Christ to his host. First Corinthians, we see again the warnings and in virtually all of the epistles, they're present. Warnings to the church is a staunch reality that apostasy must exist and apostasy does exist. In latter times, it says... These times are now. These times are present. Since the ascension of Christ, we look at these things. They're taking place just exactly according to what Scripture has folded out, what it's revealed to us, what we've had this entire time. If the Christ really is God, then someone or something will attempt to take His place. That's what this apostasy is. Jesus Christ does exist, 
Think about it. Those who even profess that God, they say, we don't believe in God. He doesn't exist. Why are they doing that? They're rebelling because He really does exist. And they know it. They're trying to draw us away. In essence, their denial is an admission that He exists because they want something else to take His place. They want the flesh to take His place. The carnality, the desires of the natural man. They'll attempt to be who Christ is. To do what He has done. To offer salvation that He offers. But the one who remains steadfast, His treasure awaits. And that's Paul's message. That's his declaration. His inheritance, this man who remains steadfast, a servant who is honoring the Lord, who is seeking the Lord, a good servant, this is one who has an eternal inheritance. His preaching is true. It's unadulterated. And Paul is saying, if some will definitively remain with Christ, made alive by Him, through Him and in Him, then also some must fall away. Demons, either directly or indirectly, shall overpower the truth that has been heard by these particular individuals. These are doctrines that originate from certainly evil creatures. We will be told in the next epistle that the ones who fall prey are counted with those who have itching ears and heap up for themselves teachers that appeal to their carnal flesh. Appeal to the sinful desires. That's 2 Timothy chapter 4. The very same thing, a different perspective. The second verse now declares that not only will they proclaim the false lies, but they actually believe them. As their minds are forever dedicated to them, it says, by means of their own hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. They're dedicated to the lies. They're dedicated to this false gospel, this false message, this false doctrine. Not only are they just saying it, but they really believe it. That's what he's saying. It's so powerful that when you fall away from the truth, that you begin to believe the lie. Their dedication is to something or someone other than Christ. And that's the message. It's dedication to a spirit that doesn't fit the biblical model that we just saw. A church that didn't preach a biblical gospel. That didn't preach a scriptural savior. A counterfeit religion. A counterfeit Jesus. And then verses 3-5. through five, Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created... To be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. For it's sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. The text declares how foolish. Because these things are created by God yet these men would come and say that they're no good. So who's lying? Is it the man or is it God? Of course we know the answer. They were created by God for our benefit, our enjoyment. Those who know the truth and believe it, they can partake. To the pure, all things are pure. All things are clean. All things are acceptable in moderation for the appropriate purpose for which they're given. But yet there were men coming up trying to pull those away from the church with hypocrisy. 
saying you can't do this, you can't do that. And so by their very denial of the freedoms that we have in Christ, the freedom to partake of food, the freedom to be married, to enjoy your spouse, they've essentially said that we've heard the truth, but we don't believe it. We don't understand it. It's not true. And so they've denied Christ. Furthermore, if we really want to take a, a, the most deep, intricate, biblical look at what they've denied and that they've denied first food and then marriage, we'll look to Ephesians 5. It says that marriage here is like the church in Christ. It says wives must be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wife, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. To deny marriage is to deny Christ, who he is, what he has done, who he is ransoming. If you want to take a biblical look at that, to deny marriage is given in Genesis to proclaim Christ of the New Testament. In the beginning was that union so that it could constantly from then forward till this earth shall pass away it professes the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the ransoming power that His shed blood on the cross has for those who belong to Him. If we deny marriage, we deny Christ. It's an earthly union, of course, that will forever declare Christ and the church. The relationship that's there. To say these things are no good, as these men had, obviously, from the text, would be to call God a liar from the very beginning. Notice that if this is true, what is said in Ephesians about marriage and the church, then we must also recognize that Christ is not an afterthought. That marriage came before we see an incarnate Christ because we, God knew He would send His Son to die. God knew that He would have to ransom. He knew that Adam would sin. He knew that they would fall. Pray to the flesh. And so if we deny these things, we're denying the gospel, the entire gospel. We're denying Christ as the Messiah. We're calling God a liar. And then we're saying, it is good for man to be alone. There again, God, God has told a lie. And if we say that, then we affirm that throughout the Old and New Testament, as marriage is upheld, to declare the cleansing of the bride by the head, which is Christ Himself, 
We're saying that the salvation and preservation and sanctification that comes from Christ is null and void. We're saying He's not our head. This foreshadowed union that's displayed on earth, which is marriage, it must be counterfeit then. It doesn't speak of Christ. Therefore, not only are they awaiting a Messiah who's already come, but they're really denying that a Messiah will come. Anyone who would take this particular view, who would seek with these doctrines of demons to take away those who are of the church, how can these things not be good? They're a witness to the world of the redemption of Christ's bride. To say that they're bad, and to say that they're unnecessary, to say it's better, is to say that Christ Himself is unnecessary. To say that you shouldn't experience this union would be to say that you don't need to experience the union of Christ and His bride. You don't need the redemptive power of Jesus' blood. And then we get to verse 6, and it says, A good servant, you see, is one who informs others. It says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. You aren't a good servant if you merely believe, but keep the truth. Don't keep it just for yourself. It says, keep the truth not to yourself, but share it with everyone. Not only keep it, but keep it alive. Keep proclaiming the truth. That's a good servant. Not one who receives the truth and hides it and never repeats it again. Never shares it with anyone. But he said it's one who is a good servant that is constantly nourished on the words of faith. He's pointing these things out. He's sharing them with the brethren. That's why it's important for us to assemble. That's why it's important to be in the Word. The underlying truth is that a true believer, a true follower, is no longer concerned as much for his or her own life as he is for the brethren, the brothers and sisters, the members of the church, the bride of Christ. There's the concern. There's a shift from being concerned for self to being concerned for Christ so much that you're concerned for the brethren. We must be willing to confront. That's what Paul's really saying here. And pointing out these things. If you're willing to confront these things, then you're a good servant. You're willing to confront, to sacrifice, to teach. This is what's required of us. And it doesn't just lie with ministers or leaders, men in the church. Women have the opportunity to proclaim Christ to other women, to children, to their families, to their neighbors. It's really a description of disciple-making that Paul's brought forth. You aren't hungry for man-centered gospels, for a false gospel, but you're one who is truly spiritually feeding daily on the one who's the bread of life, the authentic God-man, Jesus Christ. And your feeding is not unto temporary satisfaction. It's not just unto the death of this body but it's nourishment unto eternal life. It's feeding you and leading you to the time when you can put off corruption, put on immortality. This nourishment comes from the Word, it says. The words of faith and of sound doctrine. 
So anyone who says that doctrine isn't important hasn't read this passage. It's very important. The nourishment comes from this. It says faith in Christ. It's spiritual milk that is becoming spiritual meat. The inference is that all feed, but some only taste and then spew Christ from their mouths. Others taste and know He is good and never leave. Continue to feed. Relying on His sustenance for something that's more appealing. It's something that is to come. It's being present with Christ. But then those who spew it out, they leave something that's for more appealing to themselves. More appealing to the flesh, the desires of the sin. The enjoyment that they get from sin. And in Hebrews chapter 6, I believe there's a, a more condensed and easier understanding uh, for us as the, as the bride of Christ, the flock that belongs to Him. It says, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. It's impossible. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Back in verse 1, we see that they'll fall away. And then here in Hebrews chapter 6, it says those who fall away will not again be restored. There's no chance. They trade the truth for a lie. They openly crucify Christ. They mock Christ and shame His ministry. Shame His church. Degrade the church and the truth of how salvation has made made have the truth of how the Word of God has made salvation effectual unto men. They mock those things. These are those who stand in opposition to Christ. Thus their declaration is that if Christ alone is not sufficient, then He also must have not been without sin or must have not been without guilt. Therefore, He is not without blame, making His righteousness unrighteousness, nullifying Him being the Lamb of God without spot and blemish. And all of these things would deny His deity. If you take that particular view, if you have fallen away and you've crucified Christ again, you're saying, hey, He's not good enough. And the truth is that if He's not good enough for you, He won't be good enough. You won't see eternal life, not with Christ. If He alone is not sufficient, then yes, you, you do need something else. And you won't ever find it. You'll be disappointed. He's the only way, so if He's not good enough, then there is no other way. You can't be restored. Jesus would be of no effect to these people. No sacrifice great enough that they can stand, yet still with no remission of sin, they lack 
eternal life. They lack reconciliation. They lack biblical Christ. There's no mediator available for those who believe a false gospel. There's no mediator available for those who preach a false gospel. For those who draw away and cause contention within the church. That they would themselves and cause others also to fall away from true biblical teaching. It must be by grace alone, through faith alone. Now verse 7, the focus of our text this morning says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Don't take offense to this. It's a saying. Paul is literally saying, keep yourselves far removed from the lies of the world. Those false teachings that belittle the work and the sufficiency and need for Christ, these things are characterized by being what? Verse 7 says, worldly. Worldly fables in the NASB. You know, the word worldly is very strong. I mean, it's extreme sin. It's devoid of Christ. And so when it says that and we look at it appropriately, we think, wow. You know, there's such a strong connotation. An effectual warning because servants and ministers can be caught up in worldly things. We don't want to be given to these worldly things. And it's dangerous if we are. We will be blaspheming the Word of God. We'd be quenching the Spirit of God. And certainly, we would also be guilty of subjecting the indwelling Holy Spirit that belongs to Christ to sin if we fall prey to these worldly desires. If we have something to do with the world, then we're subjecting Christ to sin. That's what the danger is because at that point when you begin to fall away, it says that we're crucifying him again. We're finding him guilty, holding him in contempt. And so by that very statute, we would be guilty ourselves. By simply engaging or being involved with worldly lies, our testimony is on one hand, this is pretty unique, it's on one hand weakened when we're involved with the world. And I say this from the perspective of those who truly are in Christ and who will persevere to the end. If we fall prey into taking part of things in the world, our testimony, it's weakened. That's one side of things. It corrupts our hearts and our minds and it appears that we've foregone a steadfastness of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then on the other hand, for those very same reasons, the very same reasons that I just listed, our testimony is strengthened. Why? Because if we find ourselves engaged with the world, because the Holy Spirit is sure to convict us as members of the church, as the flock, the bride of Christ, then soon again God wills us to either see the error of our ways or bring us to repentance. And then our strength is renewed. It's renewed in the power of God, the person of Jesus Christ. So on one hand, uh, dealing with the world, our testimony is weakened, but then it makes even greater the power of God in Christ that He could bring us back. That's why Paul offers this warning that we should stay away from those things. That we should be aware that they happen. That we wouldn't fall prey, fall victim 
to falling away from God, this causes us to boast in Christ. Not of our own will, of our own desire, of our own ability to remain, but that in order for us to remain, that we must be constantly feeding upon Him. You can't brag about your life if you have none. The source of life is Christ. It's the bread of life. And it says He's glorified, He's exalted when these things happen. And now those who around us are seeing these things, they see experientially now the power of Christ because we've been redeemed. We were given to worldly desires and then He's brought us back. He continually keeps us and people see that. It's a testimony. They see the, the power of God to preserve His people. In the most direct context, we realize that this is written for Timothy. Certainly it's written for one man, but since it's present in our scriptures, it must be for the entire church. So it should be applied to our pastors. It should be applied to preachers and ministers of the gospel. But as those who are the church, I would urge you that it is applied to us as well. All of us, men, women, children, who find themselves belonging to Christ. It's not just for the deacons. Each and every one. If elders, teachers, preachers, deacons can be spiritually and physically hindered, which is what the message of this text is, be careful, Timothy, because this can happen. If that's true, then aren't the rest of us vulnerable? Doesn't everyone here stand in need of preservation and protection from the evil of this world, the prince of the power of the air? The course of this world is one that embraces and welcomes sin. A path that is affirmed even by prophetic types and scriptures. And it says that, we'll, that that will be filled with men. This broad path that leads to destruction. Headed straight to death with a wide gate. It's prophecy. It must occur. Apostasy is at hand. But a good servant is willing to point these things out. And he says, not only point them out, but don't be associated with them. Don't fall in line. Don't let people associate you with this which is sinful. With these things that are worldly. How dangerous the things of the world are. And then 1 John says it best. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life... Is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The message here is that it's very dangerous to be involved with the world. This means that those who are perishing, every man since Adam, there's no chance to be saved if the love of the world is present. If our desires, the things that are not spiritual in nature... The best way to sum this up would be, would be to consider Matthew chapter 22. I am the God of Abraham, he says, and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And he says, but when the Pharisees heard that, he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked this question. Teacher, what is the greater commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, 
all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is alike. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Paul is affirming the words of Christ in verse 37 from a negative position. For one to give place to worldly lies and fables, he has in effect given up his love for the Lord in his heart and not fully rested upon Christ. His soul is not ever rejoicing with heavenly hosts, and his mind has wandered far from the cross. The greatest commandment, have we lost it? To love him with all our heart, all our soul, our mind, and strength. Because if we do that, we can't have time. We don't have time. We won't desire to be caught up in worldly things. The remedy here is the prescription given in the text abstinence not from the good things that God has created for men to consume and enjoy but rather you'll remember these lyrics from a song be careful little ears what you hear don't abstain from marriage from food from drink as long as it's not in excess but abstain from those things which aren't true the lies of the prince of the power of the air, the lies of the devil, the lies of those who are following him, children of disobedience, false gospel. Don't listen to it. Don't be associated with it. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3 says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. I think the simplest way for us to avoid this trap is to repeat and preach this to ourselves. Focus not on the abstinence from God's good creation, whether it be food or marriage, and focus not on keeping of the law, but focus with all diligence on the one who has kept the law, the one who has filled the law eternally to perfection. That's what we should do. Set our minds on Christ and we don't have time for the other things. We already know that uniting ourselves and giving place to false teaching means that we're at enmity with God. We're enemies of God. Despite the command in Romans, that we have to be conformed, not to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. To be slack and lacking of the world means that we're unable to be transformed because we're so full, we're so full of this world. It's a fatal place to be. Paul says in Titus, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We've been bought with a price, it says. Shall we continue to make ourselves available to the one who doesn't own us. The one to whom we're not a slave. We're to be disciplined. This discipline is not to brag and that we're able to refrain from certain things. Because we, you know, as Christians we tend to do that. I don't do that. So and so just sin. We're looking at them. We say, well, we don't do that. We're Christians. We don't cuss. We're Christians. We don't get drunk. We're Christians. And so we look at it. And that, uh, the true discipline is not that we can brag that we're able to abstain. Or refrain, but instead it's that we may be sanctified. We brag that Christ Jesus has done a work. The Holy Spirit has done a work to sanctify us through concentrating and devoting ourselves to the Word of God that we may be more made more godly. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want to be more like Christ? Isn't that what we say? Paul here says it's a discipline. Discipline's tough. Discipline hurts. But discipline is always fruitful always fruitful it's God's will it's his design and here in verse 8 we see the physical discipline of the body is 
but a mere foreshadow of what Christ makes available through spiritual discipline. It says, For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise to the present life and also for the life to come. Christ's likeness, profitable, temporally, on this earth, and spiritually. He brings forth blessings to those who are dedicated to Him, those who follow temporally. We're blessed. And then spiritually, of course, we're blessed as we follow Christ because it causes us to lean and rely upon His sufficiency for salvation. It's realized in the consummation as we'll inherit an eternal kingdom. It's a discipline whose reward is eternal because the one who promises it, the bridegroom, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ Himself, has an eternal inheritance to give. Think about the bride. They take on the name of the groom. In our culture, that's how it works. We take on the name of the groom. Isn't that marvelous? Because as the bride of Christ, we'll take on His name. We'll take on His inheritance. We need it because we ain't getting in any other way. There's no other salvation. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, far more excellent than theirs. We become one in Christ, one in his person. His name alone is enough, more than enough. And so I present this passage to point out something that I rarely emphasize. It's the logical application. I very rarely go back and apply it to modern life because I believe... Yeah, the, the Spirit will teach us different things about a passage, but <clears throat> it's something I think is necessary to emphasize. I believe that the Spirit applies the truth of the Gospel, but in this point I do want to bring it forward, and I desire that we see this. The fact is that the professing church in large has not been disciplined. She's fallen prey to the fables and the apostates of this world. And men of verse 3 who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods have now taken these methods and developed a different approach. It's no longer abstain from fruits, but the message is abstain from nothing. Have it all. Anything that you want. You can have it all. Don't abstain. Whatever your flesh desires. Nothing's off limits. Everything is good if you like it. If you say it's good. It's subject to how we feel. So subjective in a sense. It's appealing to the flesh. The Spirit of God to these people is not one who convicts, but one who encourages carnal desires. Isn't that ironic? Ultimately, the skewed perception shows up in the church in how we view marriage. So we're still dealing with food. We're still dealing with marriage. Uh, the food in, in a spiritual context would be what we can take in. The church now is saying, no, don't refrain Take it all in. We can have everybody can come. You just whatever you like, you can do it here. We just want numbers. And then instead of saying abstain from marriage, now we're saying, hey, who's to say what's marriage? Who defines marriage? What are the constraints of marriage? It's a skewed perception. It's how we view the roles of men and women. It's been diluted. It's been perverted. How we view homosexuality. No more do the deceivers. And heretical teachers say abstain and refrain, but extreme liberalism is the game plan. Marry who you want, as often as you want. In extreme cases, what you want. Doesn't even have to be a person. It's disgusting. 
So the same thing we're dealing with today, just in a different, just from a different perspective, because the church is now saying, "We don't care for what reason you're divorced. We don't encourage reconciliation. We don't even encourage marriage. By and large, the church in America, it's not important. Why? Why would we encourage marriage? Well, here's a, here's a clue: because it professes the gospel of Jesus Christ. It tells what's to come." And so we've given up on these things because we haven't been good servants. We're willing to just sit in silence and let somebody else decide what the definition of marriage is, what the definition of, of what is clean and pure is, because we're too scared to say anything. We're not pointing these things out, as Paul says in verse 6. Just have what you want. Come as you are. Stay as you are. Leave as you are. There's no conformity there. And so the danger, and what I want to bring forth from this passage is that this isn't void, isn't old, it isn't outdated. We face the same things. But at the central heart of it is the gospel itself and not standing for it. We as a church need to stand for the gospel. We need to be willing to tell someone when they're wrong. When we hear false doctrine, we need to be able to call it out. We need to be familiar with the scripture in order that we can call it out. But most certainly, when it comes to marriage, we should uphold that which is biblical. One man, one woman. The reason divorce is so bad in Scripture is because it doesn't proclaim the reconciliation of sinners to Christ, sinners to God. I say, if you're divorced, you go to hell. But what I am saying is the reason that we seek reconciliation because the true proclamation of marriage is that no matter what one party does, the man, the head, Jesus Christ, is willing to cover those sins, forgive those sins. It's not something that we should take lightly. In closing, Paul says that a faithful man points out these things. And so I ask, have you become silent? You're the church. Are you silent? Do you let your friends, your family, your neighbors speak untruths, false gospels, hypocrisy? Have we become accepting? Are you feeling safe from sin as long as it's not in your household, in your family, in your immediate area? Or do you hate sin universally? Remember, it's a discipline. It's not without its own trials and tribulations. But it's for your spiritual discipline that we're familiar with the Word of God. That we're familiar with the biblical Christ and the biblical gospel. It's an embrace of your Redeemer, your Bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says, for If it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. Let's go to the Lord. Father, as we come to a close today, Lord, we thank you for your word because your word is truth. God, it's powerful unto salvation. It's powerful unto preservation. We can't be taught only by men, Lord. We can't be taught 
by experience, but we can be taught by your Spirit. Lord, we ask that your Spirit be upon us today in such a way that we see how important it is, Lord, to not be a people who are silent. We should be professing your Son, Jesus Christ. We should be rebuking those who would deny who He is and what He's done. Lord, let us stand strong for the things that You have given us, for they are good, Lord. For food, nothing is unclean. God, for drink, also in moderation, nothing is forbidden. But God, let us also stand strong for biblical marriage and that it represents what your son Christ has done on the cross for his bride, us, the church. Let us see it as a sacred union, God. Let it be something that we don't dismiss or don't look past, Lord, but something that we embrace and uphold and affirm from a biblical view because it represents your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Hymn 88.